Morning, happy Sabbath. You know, I'm such a prima donna, I was asked to compromise before, maybe preach from over there, and I was like, it, it's hard enough for me. Um, now, this week, you, you guys don't really realize how much work goes into putting together the service, and there's a lot of people in the beginning of the service um, who, during the week, they figure out who does what and who goes where, and, you know, I kind of weighed in. I said, you know, how much time will I have for my sermon? And Pastor Osagira weighed in, and he didn't say it in these exact words, but the message was clear. Um, the message was clear that if it's good, it doesn't really matter how long it is. Well, that didn't put any pressure on me. So, um, so I started thinking, and the story came through to me um, about the worst sermon that was ever given and its impact. Um, it was 1850 in Essex, England. And a 15-year-old boy knew he needed something in his life. And he had this church in mind that he wanted to go to. So this 15-year-old guy gets out of his house, and it's a blizzard outside. The storm is horrendous. And he's pushing, and he's trying to get to the church he's going to go to, and he just can't make it. So he comes to a side street, and he sees a little church, and he says, I'll go in there. And he walks in. It was called a primitive Methodist church, and primitive Methodists are Methodists that went back to their old way of Methodism, and he walked in, and there was 12 to 15 really old people sitting there, and the pastor couldn't make it. The pastor couldn't make it to church that day because he got snowed in, or as they said in England, snowed up, Um, and he sat down, and one old guy said, I better, you know, they came here for a sermon, I better do it, so this guy gets up, ill-prepared to give a sermon, working-class guy in England, had a very poor grammar, heavy accent, and he had one verse of the Bible that he just repeated over and over. And it was Isaiah 45, 25. Look upon him and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. But he didn't use the whole verse. He just kept saying over and over, look at him and be saved. Look at him and be saved. Looking at him ain't so hard. It's not as hard as lifting your finger. Just look at him. And the kids try to assume an unassuming place in the back of the church. And finally, the old guy looks and says, you look miserable, young man, which was true. He said, if you don't look upon him and be saved, you'll be miserable the rest of your life. At that moment, the boy was converted. And one year later, Charles Spurgeon gave his first sermon at the age of 16. And Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest Christian preacher that that ever lived. Um, Incredible preacher. In fact, um, to tell you his significance, um, I did a sermon at the jail once, and I stole it from Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers today, and he's on the radio. I encourage you to listen to him. And I wrote a letter to Alistair Begg, kind of apologizing for stealing his sermon. And... uh, to my shock, a couple months later, I got a handwritten note from, Spur- uh, from uh, Alistair Begg, and he wrote in it, um, Re- Robert, relax. There once was a preacher named Spurgy who didn't care too much for liturgy, but his sermons are fine, and I use them as mine, and so does most of the clergy. Uh, <laughs> which is true. That's who Spurgeon is. And I, I got to tell one more Spurgeon story because this story was told to me by my dear friend, Kurt Mountain. 
Um, Kurt Mountain was reading, get, looking for offering um, devotionals, and he came upon this story about Spurgeon. He told me that when Spurgeon achieved his heights of uh, pastordom in England, this pastor had a church that was going under. And as the church was going under, he wrote Spurgeon a letter, and he said, Charles, will you come and preach at our church? We need to fundraise. And Spurgeon said, sure, I'd love to come. Um, where will I stay? He gets a letter back from the pastor. Well, you could stay, if you'd like, you'd stay at my house on the beach, or you could stay in my house in the country, but if it's more convenient, you could stay in my house in the city. Um, Spurgeon's response was short and direct. I hereby cancel my speaking engagement, sell your houses, and save your church. <laughs> and so that, that's Spurgeon. But at any rate, um, it made me feel good that if that old guy bumbling and stumbling up there could um, touch a guy like Charles Spurgeon, then certainly a bumbling fool like me can maybe... Who's a Spurgeon out there? Maybe... maybe Maybe Kevin, huh? Yeah. All right. So um, what I want to do today is I've, I've come up here last few times. We've talked about theology and we're doing Romans and, and you know, we're going back and forth about the depths of theology and, and, and some even accused me of some Catholic bashing. Um, no, I just tease and joke. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out publicly, Jonah. But there's going to be none of that today. Today is... Let's take a look at who God is and what is God's nature and what does he mean to me and who are we really. And the way we're going to do that is to um, look at a parable. And everybody knows me. They can probably already guess the parable I'm going to go with. Um, but before that, we've got to really talk about what parables are all about and why parables were told. And one thing I've got to tell you, the only thing worse that a young seminary student telling you about what they learned is an old seminary student telling you what he's learned. And um, if you really want to pull your hair out, you ought, to be, you ought to overhear a conversation between an old seminary student and an old theologian named Jim Wallace. And he's got some crazy ideas at Wallace. Now, parables are pretty much misunderstood a lot by the church and certainly by us today. Parables were never told by Jesus to convert anybody. The parables were told to strengthen the faith of people who already believed. And the one problem we have with the parables is that the Gospels were not written chronologically. So we read the Gospels and we just see this mass of facts. We see Jesus was born, he was baptized, he told parables, he fed people, he made bread, and he was uh, suffered, died, and was crucified. And we're not really clear in our mind how all of those things felt, fall together and how it all happened. And one thing we have to understand is how these things each happened. Jesus' ministry fell into a three-and-a-half-year cycle, a three-and-a-half-year ministry. And it had three distinct phases to it. And scholars have kind of narrowed it down to three. They call it three one-year phases. You know, some are a little longer, some are a little shorter. Phase one was what scholars call the year of obscurity. This is when Jesus was, became baptized. Jesus um, went immediately into the desert. So, you know, he spent at least a month and a half of his first year in the desert um, being tempted. He did some miracles, and he did a little teaching, but it wasn't really the big year of his ministry. It was the, what they call the year of obscurity. Year two is what they call the year of popularity. 
This is marked by massive crowds and miracles. This is when he selected the disciples, was in year two. This is when he, you know, had these huge crowds and this huge following. And then finally, the third year, the third year is called the year of rejection. By the third year of Jesus' ministry, you, you start hearing things like, these teachings are too much. This is too much for us to take. And many disciples were falling away. And the plots to kill him grew rather intense. Um, and, you know, from year two, they were still waiting for the bread king to come back. You know, where's that guy who makes all the bread and the fish? You know, that, that's, that's what they were really looking for. But the plots to kill Jesus culminated in his, in his crucifixion. Now, where were the parables in this? The parables were in year two. They were in the year of popularity. Now, the parables are, like I say, very important to understand that they were not meant at all to try to convert people. Because, you know, most of the parables start, the kingdom of God is like. And you have to already understand who God is and accept God before you start wanting to know what the kingdom of God is like. And certainly by the second year of Jesus' ministry, the battle lines had been drawn. The battle lines have been drawn. You had the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees on one side who were completely rejecting him, and the people who wanted to hear him and hear his message. Now, the, the opposition to Jesus was certainly the Pharisees. The Pharisees were learned guys. They knew the Mosaic law, and they knew this guy was preaching against what they understood, and therefore he had to be wrong. The Sadducees were guys that they, they were born into it. They were, they were kind of the, the landed gentry. The, they were born into it. That's who they were. And they didn't really care about Jesus at first. It was when Jesus claimed Messiahship that the Sadducees got in. Because they go, wait a minute. This is going to disrupt the social order. So now all of this culminates in the parables. Because you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes sitting on one side, and the lost sheep on the other side. Now, what are parables? Parables are earthly stories with a heavenly message. And the, the haters of Jesus never got the heavenly message, and they wouldn't even accept the earthly story. And the reason was Jesus' parables turn the whole world upside down. There is a rule of interpretation that says you must understand the there and then before you could apply a parable to the here and now. So when Jesus would tell them things like there was these two disrespectful sons, they would reject that. That wouldn't happen. Or when he'd tell them there was a good Samaritan, that's an oxymoron to them. The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan to those people. Um, that, that people who worked all day long got the same pay as somebody who worked an hour. That's repugnant to them. Or that this guy owed a big debt and the king forgave it. That none of these things would, would they accept. So they couldn't even get beyond the earthly message. Now, another important thing about the parables is they're a story. Storytelling is incredibly important in order to teach. Um, if you want to teach history, you better tell a story. I always tell young lawyers when they're going to go try a case, you better be telling a story. You don't say, Mr. Jones... Um, developed a way to sell widgets and sold 25,000 widgets to Mr. Smith, and Mr. Smith didn't pay him. Okay, but Mr. Jones went to school and worked at night at, at Taco Bell, and in between he had this dream for building this perfect widget, and he worked his hands and bones and finally put together this perfect widget, and Mr. Smith came and bought it and never intended to pay him. That you're going to remember, right? So 
there's always a story that, that, that works in teaching. And Jesus was obviously a great storyteller. Now, um, again, the rule of interpretation is you must understand the there and then in order to apply it to the here and now. And that's what's important. So with all that in mind, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 about two ungrateful brats that were sons of a wonderful father. And, you know, we as people put together the Bible. Jesus never called the story of the prodigal son the story of the prodigal son because Jesus told a story about two lost sons, two losers. One was, one was a, a scribe and Pharisee, and one was a, 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 a tax collector is really what he's doing. You'll see the, the great connection there. But in order to understand the prodigal son, it was those three parables in chapter 15 are a constant flow. We always pull one out. We shouldn't do that. Um, you start off with the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. So let's, let's dive into it here. Okay, this first two verses sets a scene. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This this sets the scene. The stories he goes to tell are really about these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the sinners and the people who thought they weren't sinners but were probably worse sinners than than the people they were calling sinners. So Jesus responds. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep and he find, until he finds it? This is a great picture of our Heavenly Father, isn't it? We go away and he pursues us. He pursues us. You know, we're so, we're so into this theology that we, we have to go after God. We have to connect with God. God does the work. We just have to cooperate. And when he finds him, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, think about that. God comes out and finds us in our fallen state, puts us on his shoulders and comes home. And then talking about the heart of God. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And, and, you know, I always love that, too, as people look at these parables and say, well, that means there's people that don't need to repent. There, there's good people and bad people. And if you go through the whole dialogue and go through the whole thing, nobody falls into the, re, the good crowd. We're all lost sinners, and he, gets, he finally narrows it down. So he goes through... He goes 100 sheep to one. Now we go one in 10. But now we go to the coin story. There's things that should jump off the page at us. A woman loses a coin. Women in that day didn't have money. And why is Jesus talking about a woman who loses a coin? Back in Jesus' day, when a woman was getting ready to be married, she would be given silver coins. And she would wear the silver coins as jewelry at her wedding as part of her dowry. It was very, very significant to them. Now, Jesus is talking about a more humble woman than the woman depicted here because she's really got the silver coins going on. But um, <laughs> doesn't she? Look at that. That's pretty cool. Um, but that is what a bride would look, a Jewish bride would look at the time of Jesus. So now, you know, again, the there and then to understand the here and now. Or suppose a woman 
has ten silver coins and loses one, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search it carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there'll be rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, it's the image of God coming after us. It's not us doing, doing all the work and going to Jesus. Jesus did it all for us. And again, we, we, we got to get that in our mind that he is pursuing us. We just have to stop running. Now, let's get to the big parable. Jesus continued. So you see the way it's laid out. Jesus continued. It's, it's, it's all part of the same story. So we've talked about 100 sheep to one. We've talked about 10 lost coins to one. Now we talk about two sons, and they're both lost. And the story will be clear about that. Now Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Again, the Pharisees would say, that's an idiotic story. You know why? Because in those days, we get a lot out of this first two verses. In those days, a person with a bunch of money, who this guy obviously was, would have to die in order for his kids to get their inheritance. Nobody got their inheritance before dad died. And what this son was saying is, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And what's even worse, it'd be more repulsive to the Pharisees, is he did it. And it's back to that human nature. Give me. Give me. I'm entitled. I've been coming to church. I'm entitled. I was a good Christian my whole life, and now I have cancer. That's not fair. Give me. That is the attitude. That is the human state, the give me state. But keep in mind, because our hero's uh, attitude changes somewhat as the story goes on. Not long after the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country and there squandered all his wealth in wild living. And he had spent everything there. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. Now, there's, there's powerful stuff here too. The son leaves and gathers everything he has. It, it, you know, it's like when a kid leaves to go away to college, they leave their room, right? Because they're not going away, they're just going away to college. This guy, I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. Everything he owned, he packed up and he booked. And um, so what's he do? What do you expect a young guy to do with a bunch of money? He hooped it up. He went to Vegas. Girls, booze, he's got it going on. And he spent everything. And there was then a severe salmon and he began to be in need. What does he do? What does he do when he finds himself in this mess? So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, the lowest, again, the here and then, I mean, the there and then for the here and now, the worst thing for a young Jewish guy to do would be to feed pigs. He's gone. I mean, Jesus could not have painted a picture for a guy at a lower point in his life than being a pig-feeding Jewish boy. And he's starving. So think about it. No one gave him anything. But didn't somebody give him something? Wasn't there somebody who gave him something? It was his father. And this father is the image of God. Now, 
The thing that's standing in his way right now is something that we all suffer from, and it's probably the stupidest thing we suffer from, pride. What right do we have to be prideful about anything? Pride is a thing that bothered Jesus the most. Every single thing we have is from God himself, whether it be your education, your house, your, the job you have. Everything you have is from God. But then we become prideful. Well, this guy's even better. He's so prideful, he's going to feed pigs to show how prideful he is. Now, when he comes to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I'm here starving to death. Stop there. This is another problem we think we have about reading this parable. We think he's so repentant that he's going back to the father because he knows he did wrong. What is his motive? He's hungry. He's starving. I'm eating pig slop. My dad has chow. He came to Father for mercy. He did not come for forgiveness. That's crucial. And, that's, and God still accepts him. Keep that in mind. So um, he says, I will set out and go back to my father to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Wasn't the last thing he said to dad, give me, make me. Now his heart, his spirit's broken and his heart's contrite. He's going back for mercy. But you know, it's kind of funny about this deal too. He's making a deal. He's going to make a deal with dad. You know what, dad? I'll become a servant. I'll make a deal with you. I'll be, I'll be a servant. Put me in the servant shack. And I kind of get the sense he's saying, I'll kind of work my way back into the house that way. Um, make me a servant. But that's not what the dad lets happen. So he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, back to my friend Alistair Begg, he said when he was in Scotland in Sunday school that the Sunday school teacher taught this story that the dad was sitting on the porch looking way down the path and he'd see a little dust kick up as a person's coming, and the dad would jump up and go, oh, that's not him. Oh, that's not him, until finally he saw his son. Now, again, the there and then to understand the here and now. Those guys would never run. A man of dignity would never run. They wore these long robes. He would have had to pick up the robe to run. He would never throw his arms around and kiss him. And, and, the, and the Greek used there about kissing him, my wife, Karen, when we used to have our kids who were really little, she'd grab them, she'd go, get the kisses in, and she would kiss them all over. And this is the same verb that's used um, in the Greek. Is how he just kissed them all over, just overjoyed for the kid. And um, so now the son's going to say, the son's going to tell him the speech. The, the speech I prepared, I'm going to sell dad with my speech. Um, then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right there, the father stops him. Because you know what? Dad's not going to make a deal. You don't make deals with God. You know, you've got nothing to bring to that deal with God. You've got nothing to offer. You don't, and and the the father's like, I'm not going to let you go beyond there. And guess what? You are no longer worthy to be called my son, but you are my son. Um, I knew this uh, guy from a church past and he uh, he would 
he made, a, he made a deal with God. He was a pretty successful business guy. And he'd say, everything I make above this much, I will tithe 50% of. And I said, well, where'd you come up with that? And he said, well, now God and I are partners, so he'll make it happen. You know? and, and that's such a silly way to look at it. God doesn't need your money. God's not poor. That's a silly way to look at it. You've got nothing to bring to God other than your acceptance of him. So the father says, and this is really big stuff. So um, the father says, but the father said to him, cuts him off, doesn't let him make the deal. Quick, bring my best robe, put it on him. Bring, the ring and put, bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Again, we have to understand what all those things mean. First of all, he, isn't it strange that dad doesn't say, clean the pig slop off this fool? He doesn't say that. He says, put a robe over the pig slop. My best robe. What is that, boys and girls? What have we studied throughout the Bible? What, does, what do we have? The, ro- the cloak of righteousness is Jesus Christ, the best robe. And he doesn't get rid of his sins. He covers his sins. He's still the sinful nature that he was when he walked in there, but the robe covers him in, a, in the finest linen because he's now covered in Jesus' righteousness. Put, give him a ring. The ring is huge in that day. Those days, you don't give them the American Express gold card. They didn't have that. That's what the ring was. When dad said put a ring on his finger, he gave him the American Express gold card because he could go into town with that signet ring and buy whatever he wanted. Put sandals on his feet. Servants were barefooted. Princes wore sandals. So this is... He just restored him. He took this kid who went out, squandered the money, told dad, I wish he was dead. Couldn't have been worse to the father. Couldn't have done worse stuff to his dad. I, and you know what? You try to do, and, and, and Imars kept saying, you know, in Sabbath school today, great Sabbath school today, Imars. Um, Imars kept saying it in Sabbath school, how would you have reacted? And um, anybody in my family could probably predict how I would have reacted to my prodigal pig slop son coming up after he wasted half my money. Um, I, I wouldn't be saying, here's the American Express gold card, let's have a feast, and give him my best suit. I, I would, I, I'd, like to, I'd go for the, uh, the servant deal. I think that'd be a good deal. <laughs> yeah, you, you can work as a servant for a while. Work your way back up. Show me you're worthy. But that is our God. That is our God. And again, think about the son. He came back for mercy. And that's why we go to God. Charles Spurgeon knew he needed something in his life that day. And God knew it too. And God used that old foolish pastor. I think it's going to be a great day in heaven when that guy runs into Charles Spurgeon. You know, and how many things that we have no idea we're doing that, that really play out in God's hand. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Okay, this is great. What's the other brother doing? The, the, good, the good brother, the symbol of the church-going good Christian boy. Meanwhile, you can almost hear the sign. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the home, he heard some dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, because he has him back safe and sound. 
brother's thrilled about this, right? Brother thinks, that's great. My brother's home. Not so much. The older brother came angry and refused to go in. And, and the father went out and pled with him. Again, do you see what the father does in all these stories? He goes to, he comes to us. He comes to us. Now this brother, and, and go back to the beginning of the, of the parable. You have the sinners and you have the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees think they're found. They think they're good. They know the sinners are bad. Well, isn't this the exact same juxtaposition of people? The prodigal coming home, and I'm good. But he answered his father. He said, look. You know, is that a nice way to talk to your dad? Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never, and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? He didn't say celebrate with you, Dad, with my pals. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now, this is a symbol of us in church. This is us in church pointing out at the world, saying, God hates what you do, and you're going to hell for it. That's us. And this is a sobering, sobering sign of how our attitude should be towards the world. He, he says to his dad, I slayed for you. Does Christ want us to slay for him? Christ wants us to be in union with him. This is a guy that Christ talked about later. Many will come to me in the end and say, we've done all these wonderful things in your name. Depart from me, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you. Because this guy thinks he earned something by being a good boy. I was a slave. I followed the rules. I'm entitled. And this is, a, this is a real big symbol for us to understand maybe our attitude has to be adjusted when we go out in the streets and talk to the prodigals out there. And um, he also, I also love the fact that he doesn't want to slaughter the calf, I mean, have a goat to celebrate with dad, but with his pals. And what does dad say? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You know, as somebody who really has a problem with legalism, I hate that line of the Bible. <laughs> Because he's being graceful to the legalists. He should just be graceful to bums like me. Why is he being graceful to legalists? But, but that's our God. Both sides. Both sides were lost, and he has the same grace for both of them. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's, now he's found. Now, don't you love there's another great phraseology here. Earlier, the brother said, that son of yours. That son of yours. Dad's now saying, that brother of yours. And we, we really have to look at the ingratitude of these two sons and the ingratitude of how they both had the same loving father. But I love that image. That is your father. That is your God. And that's how he will treat you if you just go to him. It is, it, we, we could study all the theology on the planet, we could do all of the Bible reading and, and seminary class, everything else. That's who our God is. He loves us unconditionally. It'll never make sense to us, as Imars is saying in Sabbath school class today. It'll never make sense to us, but that's who he is. And I pray that we are neither of the sons, yet we are both one or the other, and some of us, some of us are both of them. But we must always, always return to our base. 
God is an incredibly loving, forgiving God. He's done it all for us. Let's not be ungrateful. Thank you.